this week on Life and Faith. It's really infuriating because like 10% of pregnancies are not normal, but all these parent magazines have beautiful women who have extremely successful breastfeeding experiences, are photoshopped into looking like they just came back from the gym and they were never pregnant. If our institutions are all tarnished, we either need redemption or we need replacement. Nothing that we know is normal. But here's an interesting twist to the story. I have this strange loyalty to all former generations. Welcome to Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. Well, today's episode ventures into a place that will be unfamiliar to many, but all too familiar to some. That's the neonatal intensive care unit. This is a place where the start of life is accompanied with big questions about family, suffering and control, disability, and sadly, the end of life too. This means that today's episode is going to have some heavy content and some stuff that might not be appropriate for kids, just so you can choose to switch off now if you need to. Around 1 in 10 babies in Australia are born premature, and around 15% of all babies require some form of extra care at birth. The rates among Aboriginal Australians and disadvantaged communities are almost double that. So this is not that niche a topic, actually. No, and we have just the person to guide us through this. Annie Janvier is a neonatologist or a baby doctor in Montreal, and she works in the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, or NICU for short. But she's also a researcher. She's an ethicist who thinks about tough decisions doctors have to make in this context and has done a lot of work on the perspective of parents and their experiences. And Natasha, crucially, she has experienced herself on both sides of this line. She became the mother of an extremely preterm baby 17 years ago, right? Yeah, and she says that all the things that she knew as a doctor helped her not at all when Mm. it was actually happening to her. Uh, Later on in the episode, we'll also hear a story from Andy Crouch, who we've had before on the podcast. Um, He delivered our annual Richard Johnson lecture in 2022, And he has a confronting and emotional story about his own extended family. But first, Annie. I spoke to her in Melbourne recently when she was in Australia for a conference. I think this was actually the first in-person interview I've done (laughs) since COVID. So we'll see how I went with the tech. For someone like me who isn't familiar with this world, could you kind of describe what life in a NICU is like? So in the neonatal intensive care unit, the majority of babies there are born preterm. When you're preterm, you're born before 37 weeks of gestation. So there's babies who are very preterm and need respirators. And there's other babies who are not that preterm and don't need respirators, but need help to eat. And in the neonatal intensive care unit, you also have babies who have congenital anomalies. So for example, a heart malformation or a gut malformation, they need to have a surgery before they can go home. Um, And there's all kinds of babies who need surveillance um, because they have pauses in their breathing, because they have infections or other kind of disorders. So we take care of sick babies who um, come and help them get better to go home. The vast majority of our patients go home. So for example, in our unit, we have 1,000 or 1,100 admissions 
And at all times, we have 70 babies with 35 respirators, but there's 60 deaths. Of all the thousand babies, there's 60 babies who die. So we also have to have the experience of speaking about um, difficult issues or dealing with difficult issues, but most of the babies go home and do well. You have experience of this kind of from both sides, that you were a neonatologist for many years and then became the parent of a child in the NICU. Can you tell me a bit about Violette? So Violette, I had my first pregnancy. I already knew my cervix wasn't working well. The cervix is the part that opens to let the baby out. And in some women, it doesn't work that well and it opens beforehand. So my first child, I was on bed rest to prevent that happening and it worked. And then Violette was born second, but she came at 24 weeks, so at six months of pregnancy, so four months before she was supposed to arrive. My husband's also a neonatologist, so we were two neonatologists knowing very well how neonatology goes with our baby um, in the unit. So what was Violette like when she came into the world? Well, she was in a respirator because babies at 24 weeks generally don't are unable to breathe on their own. It's very rare that they don't need to be intubated, have a tube down their trachea. She was very small, like 700 grams. She looked like a premature baby, like all the ones I had seen as a neonatologist, but it was still shocking because it was my baby. So I'd seen a lot of 24-weekers, but this time it was my 24-weeker. Um, and she had the monitors babies have, and she had an umbilical line. So we feed the, the, instead of putting IVs in their tiny veins, we put a catheter in their umbilicus, like the same place where the mom, you know, placenta was feeding the baby. So, you know, she was a, like one of the sickest patients. This was 17 years ago. So at that point, um, a lot of babies at 24 weeks didn't survive. So she was in, you know, a tough position, mm-hmm. um, in the NICU. You've said that knowing how a respirator works didn't help you to be the mum of a baby on a respirator. Yeah. Why not? Because it's very different and I think this is where doctors get it all wrong because the main objective right now of many doctors um, is to transfer the information. For example, if you have cancer to tell you what the chemotherapy is, what agent it is, what it does, why it does this, but it's very different because I had cancer. I had many misfortunes. But as soon as you hear the word, I mean, informing people of things doesn't help them necessarily go through things. So nobody had ever informed me what it was to be a parent in the NICU or what you felt like or the emotions. I, I assumed it wasn't like great emotions, but I know I knew all the knowledge. Like we were two parents who had all the knowledge about what was going on. We, we actually knew like, you know, I can intubate my baby. I, I knew all the techniques, everything that was happening. I could have done rounds and conducted them, but it really doesn't help to actually then be a parent of a baby like that. And I think it's the same thing for oncologists who have cancer or perhaps when it's something that's not very um, emotionally taking. I don't know. You get your nose job and you're an, 
a plastic surgeon, um, I guess you're, it's much less emotional and you're able to really reflect on the technique and who's going to do it and whatever. But when it's something that's about life and death, disability, um, I don't think it really helps. And maybe it actually harm, maybe it's when you know too much, it's actually worse because you can't be the parent on the respirator because you know how it works and you know, (laughs) you know that the, ET tube can touch the carina and you know this is fragile and you know this and you know all the numbers and what's going on. Too much knowledge. So what did help? What helped is speaking to other parents in the unit. Um, And at that point, nothing much could help because I didn't have the knowledge I have now. So now I I would have a lot of knowledge of what helps. So this is my life mission is to help (laughs) families. And I was one of these parents who didn't feel like a mom. I didn't find people like she's so cute, but Honestly, 24-week babies are not that cute. Um, they're transparent, they're super red, their skin kind of sloughs up, you know, they're very fragile. Um, their eyes are fused. Um, you know, to me, she looked like a little UFO, but then you can't say that because it's my baby and I'm supposed to love her, but I don't really feel love because, you know, there's this little tiny fragile thing that, plus there's all the guilt that goes on top of that and nobody told me it wasn't my fault, but I knew it was my fault because I'm a neonatologist. So of course I know all these things, but what I know in my head, I don't know it in my heart. And so there's a lot of these emotions that I guess moms, um, parent groups, there's the Prima Quebec uh, Parent Association of Jeanette that I knew because I was involved as a neonatologist before, not knowing this would happen to me. So now she was saying words that make sense to me, like of how I felt. And acknowledged emotions, um, spoke about the emotions, um, but not that many things help because it's a very Mm. difficult place to be. There's a lot, also a lot of people who harm you without wanting to harm. Mm. Um, All friends and good meaning people, why did this happen to you? Why is she there? Is she like, you know, then it adds to the guilt and a lot of things that people would say, you know, at least you can sleep at night. Um, um, there, like, oh, so many. So I've got, I've got videos speaking about all the trash, like on YouTube, that people can tell you as a well-meaning thing, because they're trying to help you and find a like silver lining, which doesn't exist of mm. in that situation at that point. And if you say she's well, they're like, well, yeah, but tomorrow may be a worse day. Or if she's not really bad, oh, you know that whomever was born preterm and he's now climbing mountains and I don't care about your story. (laughs) But all the things that people do generally harms you because maybe you're in a bad place too. So people telling stories about their miscarriage, I don't really care about your dead dog or your miscarriage. (laughs) But it's like there's so many things that are devastating around. that it's yeah it's tough it's a a dark place but we can actually make it better and that's most of my research now is about what we can do to make it better so what do you do differently now as a doctor having had that experience because i've realized that you know all parents are different then i had to do research on what parents felt was helpful and unhelpful and how they lived that journey and not just studies where you look at how stressed they are because people are very stressed and do they have you know all, all that we know they have anxiety we know they're stressed and to some degree 
you're supposed to be stressed. Like if you're not stressed, something's wrong with you. <laughs> I hope people have some kind of cortisol response to being next to an incubator where your baby's attached to a machine and a ventilator. And if the tube is out, like the baby dies. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be stressful, but we can actually decrease this or make it better. So acknowledging emotions it's there's like because there's six hours of what we can do so just make basic steps of saying it's you know you shouldn't feel guilty most parents do and there's nothing you could have done to prevent this um to accompany the parents through these steps of how to become a parent in these situations um what are the things they can control so pumping milk being there, what helps the baby, what helps the parents, that some parents, for example, may like to be there while we do techniques on the babies, but other parents may not want to be there. So mm. um, for what reason it's very stressful or it's comforting and people are, are all different. Um, so how to make parents feel like parents, feel like they're not bad parents, and then at some point feel like they can control things, they can be part of the story, they're, and empower parents, like thank them for the milk they're bringing. Actually know if they have milk, like some resident I ask, is the mom pumping? I don't know, what? Mm -hmm. Like, no, you're supposed to know that information. Like, is the baby on a respirator? Yes, you know that. So why don't you know if the baby has breast milk in his belly? And if it's the mom's milk and if she's pumped for a month, so if she has, we'll say, hey, it's been 30 days, you're pumping your milk, you're amazing. Mm -hmm. So just that to recognize, thank you for helping us care for your baby. Mm -hmm. So things like that, that we, I guess I, I not took for granted. I, I knew if the mom was pumping, but I never thanked her for her mm -hmm. milk, for example, or told her, you know, baby's lucky you're there a lot. And you're doing all these risky things and you're singing to him so it's good for his brain and so the reinforcement of the parents are good parents um, mm. is important can i ask how is violette doing she's 17. Mm. um she's in what we call cjep so it's before university we have two years that's only in quebec it's not like that the rest of the world so the french-speaking province She's a happy girl. It takes, it's longer for her to learn things, um, but she's super dedicated, uh, very empathetic. Um, she had a major airway reconstruction two years ago because she, her trachea, the tube to breathe was too small because of all the intubations she had had. So that was hard, but that's dealt with now. Um, and yeah, she's a great kid. listening to Life and Faith and Natasha is speaking with Annie Jeanvier, neonatologist, clinical ethicist and mum to Violette who was born extremely premature. If you want to hear more about Annie and Violette's story, Annie's book Breathe Baby Breathe is very raw and honest and kind of darkly funny at times and it's about her very difficult experience of pregnancy and of being a parent in the NICU. Yeah, and the NICU is a place where big questions get asked. Annie says that she regularly has conversations with parents about things she rarely talks about with people closest to her. The meaning of life and death, guilt and fear, faith and hope. The big question is, well, why did this happen? Like, why did I deliver preterm? There's no reason. Like, life's a bitch. <laughs> That's the answer. 
Um, that, that's their first question, the anger, like, why did it happen to me? I, like, if, you know, we're two neonatologists, like, we know, like, how to, <laughs> how to be pregnant, and yet this happens to us, so that what goes through parents' mind is, why me? Um, what did I do wrong? And there's nothing you did wrong, it just happened. Um, then, is my baby going to die? A lot of parents don't really have to think about that because it's super unlikely. During the NICU, then it depends. I, we were lucky, quote unquote, to be close to the hospital, but other parents have to drive for hours and they have other children. So how do I reorganize my family for this difficult moment? And then is my baby going to have some impairments following this? Mm. And for some babies, I mean, they're born with an impairment, with a congenital anomaly. So it's more how can I be the parent of a child with that disability of whatever, not having one ear so he won't hear as well, or um, gastric problems where the child will be fed through a gastrostomy, through a tube, through his belly for the first years, for example. Or So there's some parents who head-on learn to have a, a baby who's different, who has um, disabilities that we can actually help him be able um, in, in society where how can we optimize everything so the baby will have a full potential. Others, it's a lot of preterms. We know with time what happens. So there's that potential. So this is one of the things that parents are most concerned about. Um, and can I be a parent in this situation? Like how can I be a parent of a baby who dies? Um, we don't teach that. How can I be a parent of a disabled kid? Like we, most of the prenatal stuff is unfortunately about healthy pregnancies. It's really infuriating because like 10% of pregnancies are not normal, but all these parent magazines have like beautiful women who have extremely successful breastfeeding experiences are <laughs> photoshopped into looking like they just came back from the gym and they were never pregnant. <laughs> it's like, so when you are the one in 10, that doesn't grow through that it's and these magazine like confront you like there could be magazines for the one in ten because there's so many who go through that different experience so there's a lot of material out there you can find to support you but we don't speak about these things a lot um miscarriages so many people so many women experience miscarriages but it's kind of taboo um it's very rare that we ask a woman how many kids do you have and that she said, well, I had two miscarriages and I have three kids. So she really was a mom in her heart five times. Mm -hmm. And at some point she lost that connection she had to that baby, even if it's like that she saw two lines on the pregnancy test or she had a baby grow or she heard the heartbeat. Or um, So because we don't speak about it that way, and if we do, then people are shocked. So moms in the NICU who lost their baby, when they say, I have three kids, but one of them passed, it's very uncomfortable. The other person who's not a neonatologist, uh, who, who's not in the field, will say, oh, you know, it's a beautiful date, may rain, or like, <laughs> just change the subject quickly. Oh, no, we won't speak about dead babies. But mm. often women want to speak about, like, it's an honor to their child to recognize this life existed and was precious and mm. is, is still important. Years ago, Annie wrote an article called Pepperoni Pizza and Sex, which she says is still the one she gets asked about the most. It's about some of these questions of disability and quality of life and how contextual those things can be. 
Well, the pepperoni pizza and sex is about Gabriel, a kid who was born and bled in one side of his brain. And I was speaking to their parents about what that meant and how function may be affected long term. And the dad asked if the kid would be able to have sex. And I like, geez, this is a weird question because obviously sex is important. <laughs> so, but it's the first time like parents ask me this in this <laughs> yeah. context. And I'm like, yeah, and it's a, a good question because some people with spinal cord, for example, transection, they, they're unable to have an erection later. So I guess that dad is like, Jesus, is it that scenario when I'm speaking about the legs not working? And no, it's not that scenario. So explained all that. And then he said, can he put pepperoni pieces on the pizza? Will we be able to do that? And yeah, usually preemies can use their hands. And because and he had a pizzeria with his wife and it was like a little corner shop. And well, you know, if his son was able to put the pepperoni pieces on the pizza and was able to have sex, he'd have a good life. And it's all in the definition of a good life. And I knew every parent had the different definition of a good life. But in medicine, we're very instructed, like we value intelligence very highly, probably more highly than if you take any member of society. Um, there's things perhaps we don't value enough. Um, so if you ask two marathon parents, that had a baby with Gabriel and said he may not use his legs and the parents, all they do is be outside and walk and are hikers, that's going to be a bit more stressful. Or if you speak to two musician parents and say your kid will be deaf, it'll be very different to the marathon runners who their kid may be deaf but walk and do the hikes with them. So I think there's a lot of things that reflect our values and our expectations. So two doctors may expect their child, you know, to go to university because they don't know anybody in their family who didn't go to university. But then if you speak to other people who nobody went to university, then they'll have very different questions about what it is to lead a good life. Beyond the NICU, this idea that our sense of someone's quality of life depends very much on what we value is especially clear to families of children living with disability. Now, we've got a little interlude for you here, then we'll come back to Annie Janvier for the last word. But we wanted to share with you this story from Andy Crouch, who's the author most recently of The Life We're Looking For. This is from a conversation Justine Toe had with him. Andy, can you tell me about your niece, Angela? You write about her very movingly in Mm. your book, Strong and Weak. Can you tell us about the scale of challenges that she was facing? My niece, Angela, is the third of my sister's four children, and uh, she was born with trisomy 13, which is, uh, we know the trisomies most often through trisomy 21, which is called Down syndrome, uh, where you have three copies of the 21st chromosome, and we know that that creates a lot of challenges for people who have it and their families. But trisomy 13, uh, which is the 13th chromosome, you have three copies in every cell in Angela's case, is frankly a a lot more difficult. Um, Angela... Uh, the moment she was born, the midwife knew something was not right, and um, it took a while to figure out what was not right, and it turns out almost everything, it's like the instruction code is just confused in the human body, and so none of the systems work the way they're meant to. She never spoke, um, even her hearing was probably limited, her sight was limited, her cognitive abilities extremely limited. I think she probably... I don't know if she knew who her parents were. I I think in some way she did, but certainly never knew who her uncle Andrew was. (laughs) That's me. 
And she lived with tremendous frailty because half of the children who are born alive with trisomy 13, many are not, uh, die in the first week and most die in the first year. And when my sister and her husband were in the hospital with Angela, the doctors said, this is incompatible with life, really, and so you should expect a quick expiration. In fact, she lived for 12 years, and it was absolutely life-altering. We use life-changing in a positive way, and I would say it was very positive. I would also say it was just altering in every way, um, above all for my sister, but really for our whole family. To have this person in our midst who... As she grew, she grew physically, got to be the size of more or less a typical 12-year-old, I suppose, maybe a little smaller, but, you know, a growing human being who was not developing in the way that human beings do. And the care that's required for that is quite something, you know, to care for someone every day in that way. And watching my sister do that, man, I've never been so proud of my sister in my life. But it also really affected our whole family and the community around that family. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that? Because you talk about how do not want to romanticize her condition in in any way, but there was a sense that her vulnerability created mm-hmm. an opportunity in yeah. a strange way in the family. How did it affect the family? It's very surprising in a way. I mean, you would think, gosh, this is just going to be really hard. And it was really hard. And it was hard even to be sort of one degree of separation away from the most intense aspects of it as as her uncle rather than her father, say. But there was something about bringing this very, very needy person into my parents' home where we would often gather that just focused everyone's attention. (laughs) We were present. Do you know, I don't know, maybe this isn't the case for you, but I think in many families, you get together with your family of origin, your extended family, all the nephews and nieces and there's at least some temptation to sort of check out or to be half present, but you're also checking your phone, checking your email or, you know, whatever, thinking about the next thing. Guilty as charged, yes. Yeah, and maybe in many families, not all those relationships are totally intact and full of trust. And our family loves each other, but it's just complex. And Angela just required a level of presence that nothing or no one else could because she she was there needing us to pay attention to her, to know what was going on with her, to interact with her in this. The only way to interact with people with profound disabilities is with very deep attention in a way. And that translated into kind of an attention to each other and an attention to the moment that we had together. I don't, it's very hard to explain, <laughs> but it was very healing, I think, for a family that had sort of, you know, I had my sister and I moved away from our parents' home. We would come back for holidays and so forth. But now we were coming back in a much deeper way when we were together. So that was at the family level. But then, you know, they were living in a community in the American state of New Hampshire, in this rural community, who just totally came around all the challenges and said, let's figure out how to meet them. So, for example, their local school enrolled her in kindergarten when she got to be that age. But then at the end of the kindergarten year, there was no particular reason for Angela to advance to first grade. Her needs were not changing and her abilities weren't changing. So they just kept her in kindergarten. But this actually meant that six classes of kindergartners had Angela as their classmate. And they all came to love her. Uh, Every class of kindergartners that was with her 
befriended her in the way they could and loved her and included her. And one of the most amazing things, she died at the age of 12. And so all these different kids of different ages came to the funeral who had been in kindergarten with Angela. This is a small town in rural New Hampshire. This whole community was kind of, its priorities were shifted just a little bit and its sense of possibility was shifted by having this very needy person who they decided to include as part of their story. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because when you hear about someone with those sorts of challenges that Angela faced, you think it's the very opposite of flourishing. But maybe it presses us to sort of reconsider what we think flourishing is. It's not just simply something that is in a property or an, an individual thing, but it can right. actually describe a community of care in a way. Yes. And on her own, Angela would not have flourished because, uh, and, and that's actually true of all of us, like no matter how typically abled or how capable you are, if you had not been surrounded by a community of care, you wouldn't have made it to today. And so in one way, it's no different for Angela than any of us, except that we sort of can imagine that we are independent and can grow out of needing that somehow, which is not true. And having someone in your midst who you can't believe that lie about, you can't believe that myth of independence, it actually creates flourishing uh, in everyone who is drawn into the circle to say, okay, how do we meet this need? How do we include this person? How do we include a person who may never be able to respond back to us the way we might normally respond to each other? But we can see that we're making a difference in her life. And we can see that when she's having a good day or a bad day, and it, it relates to things we do, like there, we've got some possibilities here. And that actually introduced flourishing into my own family and into the community that my sister and her family live in. And we think, I think we so often imagine, oh, if the world had fewer problems, you know, that would be, wouldn't that be nice? Well, of course. I mean, I, you know, sure. Take some problems off the table. Uh, certainly solve the things that can be solved and don't do stupid stuff, you know, but you're going to have this vulnerability left that is the essence of being human. And coming around that together is actually the essence of flourishing. You have a lot of um, deathbed moments in your books as well. So you're not only <laughs> you're right. interested in like the beginnings <laughs> of life, but the ends of life as well. And yeah. just thinking about the vulnerabilities, you know, I mean, for someone who's so interested in power, you hold these two things, power and vulnerability, very closely very together. Close. This is the this is the human complex, if I can borrow another phrase of yours. Um, yeah. This is the human uh, pair, maybe, yeah. both incredibly powerful, but also intensely vulnerable. Is that what it means to be human? That is what it means to be human. And one of the really sad things about the modern world is you can live a lot of kind of lives and not be present for birth and not be present for death. Um, because we've created technological ways to move those off stage. That wasn't true for most of human history. It's not true for many people today. But those of us who live in the world that listens to podcasts, we've got the option to live in a a narrowed world that doesn't really see the birth and doesn't really see the end. And the only reason I write about them in some ways is, is I've had the unbelievable privilege of seeing both in certain ways up close and realizing this is actually where the most grace is in these most vulnerable moments in different, very different ways. And in a way, I, I just want us all to remember and, and hope, because it's scary to go to those places. And to re just to hope, no, actually, if you go there, you're going to find out something 
it will change your life. And it's actually the thing that changes the world for the better. I can't prove it, but I can sort of point the way and say, hey, come and see. Of course, Annie Janvier is one of those people who, by virtue of her job, is present for birth and often present for death. As a last question, I wanted to know if there was anything that's really clear to her working in a place like the NICU that maybe isn't so obvious outside that context, that she wishes the rest of us had more of a handle on. The gratitude of being alive, being able to experience what we do. I mean, it's so unfair, this world. Like, even in the NICU, I was thinking, you know, there's women who are in refugee camps and are delivering on their own and have, like, bombs falling on their heads, or women being raped or no education, or just to realize how so you are so grateful to what we have every day. I think it's only for real when you lose it that that when you're scared for your child's life when you're scared for your life when there's some mental illness in your family that you realize somebody can be just possessed by this disease and not be the person they are that's when you realize wow so i don't right now i i'm I'm very grateful for that but also extremely intolerant of i don't know like perhaps not very nice to residents who complain about the call schedule like i'll get lost you know (laughs) like you're a doctor taking care of the baby would you rather be the dad on the other side of the incubator or the cancer patient on the other bed or the doctor on this side who goes home and you know please has the education the money and everything so yeah i think i'm a different person now that i complain about stupid things Mm -hmm. way less and i guess i enjoy life more but it's not i don't want to like wish anybody goes through the nic to realize (laughs) that but it's not the nic i'm I'm sure any listener of the podcast who had had a breast biopsy or somebody closed eye or like everybody has their challenges but i think that's you know the silver line like when you realize how weak you can be and how everything can be taken away I think you live life more fully, or then you help others who go through similar situations. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. Our thanks today to Dr. Annie Janvier for sharing her story and expertise with us, and to Andy Crouch and Justine for the story of Angela. And, of course, to our producer, the resplendent Alan Douthwaite. If you want to read Annie's book, that's called Breathe, Baby, Breathe, and you can read more about Andy's niece, Angela, in his book, Strong and Weak. We'll put links to both of those in the show notes. As always, we'd love you to leave us a rating or review. We would love you to share this episode with someone that you think would benefit from it. And if you want to get in touch about anything, our email is podcast at publicchristianity.org. Next week. You will find very few academic historians of science and religion, which is a comparatively new discipline, saying that the two have been at constant war or conflict, which is what the popular narrative has been, at least since the end of the 19th century.